Good evening and welcome. You're watching an extended edition of The Fred Paul Show, sitting in for Alan Jones, who's still recovering from surgery, and we all wish him well. Well, what's happening in the United States? The examples of lunacy coming out of the midterm elections is mind-boggling. Tim Ryan, who is the Democrat candidate for the o Ohio Senate seat, describes himself as a moderate, but supports free sex changes for illegal immigrants. Let that sink in. If you're a taxpayer in Ohio, Ryan wants you to pay for destructive, irreversible surgery for some psychologically unstable blow-in whose very presence in the country is illegal. Mind you, that surgery is going to be more difficult if this plan by President Joe Biden goes ahead. Massachusetts about a month ago on the site of the largest old coal plant in America. Guess what? It costs them too much money. They can't count. No one's building new coal plants because they can't rely on it, even if they have all the coal guaranteed for the rest of their, the existence of the plant. So it's going to become a wind generation. And all they're doing is going to save them a hell of a lot of money and using the same transmission line they transmitted the coal-fired electric on. We're going to be shutting these plants down all across America. <laughs> what was that, Joe? You're going to shut down reliable, cheap energy right across America? No wonder President Joe Biden is electoral poison right now. Most Democrat candidates would sooner stand next to Bozo the Clown than the sitting Democrat president. Winning is not a prominent part of the Democrat strategy right now. Two of the best known Democrat candidates, Stacey Abrams running for governor of Georgia and Beto O'Rourke running for governor of Texas, are not famous for achieving anything but for serially losing elections. The leftist website The Atlantic dubbed them both superstar losers a title that will almost certainly be enhanced by tomorrow's vote count. Even more strange is the fact that the Atlantic piece didn't even mention the man who makes Abrams and O'Rourke look like John F. Kennedy, Pennsylvania Democrat Senate candidate John Fetterman. Fetterman alarmingly holds a narrow lead against his opponent, Republican Mehmet Oz, because Democrat handlers kept him in the same basement Joe Biden hit in for most of the 2020 presidential election campaign. Hey, it worked for Joe. But now, that, but now that he's been let out of the basement, voters are alarmed at just how confused Fetterman is, which some people attribute to the stroke he suffered five months ago, when he was finally forced out of the basement to confront Oz in a televised debate. He delivered this masterpiece of political rhetoric. I do want to clarify something. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. But that's nothing compared to the symbolism of what happened on the weekend. I have to be standing with a president that is 100% sedition free. 
morning to serve Pennsylvania. And then he seemed to endorse the opposite of the standard Democrat policy about the Roe v. Wade case regarding what used to be a federal right to abortions. I run on Roe v. Wade. I celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade. The disturbing thing is that Fetterman could actually win the Pennsylvania seat because 640,000 people voted in that state before that debate revealed him to be mentally compromised. If he does win, most Republican voters will shrug it off as another case of Democrat subterfuge, as they always do, and just try to get on with their lives. But they won't if a new poll by the Washington Post is to be believed. The poll found that 63% of Americans are, quote, very concerned, unquote, about political discourse degenerating into violence in their country. If you ask me, that figure's low. BLM and Antifa have already led the descent into violence, and they did it with the moral support of the left-wing media, including the Washington Post. So for the paper to sound concerned about it is disingenuous, to say the least. But then the poll gets even worse. The Post's report says 31% attribute the threat of violence to Republicans, and only 25% blame Democrats. This is despite almost all the political violence in the US, violence that has caused billions of dollars in damage and killed dozens of people, coming from the left. So why would this survey find Republicans to be the most politically violent? Well, it was conducted immediately after the attack on Paul Pelosi, the wife of the Democrat House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in their home in San Francisco. The attack was initially and wrongly blamed on a Trump supporter by media outlets like, you guessed it, the Washington Post. In fact, the attacker, David DePape, was a felon and illegal immigrant who was able to stay in San Francisco because it is a Democrat-run sanctuary state, California, in California, I should say, where illegal immigrants are welcome. He's also a paranoid drug user who lives in a commune described by neighbours as progressive. This isn't the first time progressives have attacked the Pelosi home. Last year, they daubed graffiti on her garage and left a pig's head on her driveway to pro protest that her government's COVID stimulus checks weren't big enough. More recently, Arizona Republican candidate for Governor Carrie Lake's office was shut down after receiving threats and envelopes of white powder in the mail. And North Carolina Democrat candidate Jeff Jackson shot a campaign ad outside the home of his Republican opponent, Pat Harrigan, after which a gunshot was fired into the house with kids inside, presumably by a Democrat supporter. So yeah, the problem in the US is that conservatives might turn violent. President Joe Biden has warned that, quote, democracy is on the ballot, unquote. A clever deflection from the fact that Democrats are offering nothing but continued inflation, insecurity, 
division and the diminution of American status around the world. In a strange speech just a few days before the last day of a, a long polling period, Biden said it would take days for the vote to be counted, which to some was code for it would take days for the Democrat vote counters to calculate how many fake votes they'd need to win. Not even that is likely to work, though. The consensus is that a red wave of Republican votes is about to swamp Congress. There is also a growing awareness among former diehard Democrat supporters that the party is destroying the US. Phil Knight is the founder of Nike, one of the wokest corporations in the world. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and has donated almost four million US dollars to the Republican and independent candidates in an attempt to end decades of decay in that city under Democrats. In one of the stupidest headlines ever published, The Guardian last week asked, quote, why is Nike founder Phil Knight so desperate to prevent a Democrat win in Oregon, unquote? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with these thugs marching in the streets, destroying businesses and declaring themselves ungovernable. Even CNN is admitting that the Democrats have lost the plot. Correcting Biden's false claim that he'd made generous increases to pensions and stopped big companies avoiding tax. Biden is desperate and for a good reason. If Republicans win both houses of Congress, they will be in a better position to investigate the allegations of corruption that have been hanging around the White House like the toxic emissions from private jets at a COP27 meeting in Egypt. In his book, Red Handed, published this January, investigative author Peter Schweitzer says the Biden family's dodgy dealings with China alone have netted $31 million over the years. The infuriating thing for American voters is that even when CNN and some of their biggest supporters abandon them and the polls say they are heading for oblivion, they still refuse to get the message. They've even wheeled out Hillary Clinton, possibly the least popular politician in the world right now, to distract the punters from the Democrats' appalling record in office. And hey, you know, they're going after democracy and even counting votes that uh, they think will help them and not others that won't. I mean, those are real threats, threats to individuals and our lives every day and threats to our country. Yeah, whatever you say, Hillary. Could she be less persuasive if she tried? There's a lesson in this for all politicians. When your policies turn out to be counterproductive for the voters, it's probably a good idea to ditch them and start selling them something they can actually buy. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese might find himself in a similar bind when his net zero madness sends ordinary Labor voters broke in droves between now and the end of his first term. Well, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese made all the right comments about the defence of Australia in an interview with The Australian on the weekend. Regarding Australia's strategic alliance with the United States, he told the paper's foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, quote, we made our decision in 1941. That was the right decision then, and the US is the right partnership now, unquote. 
Albo was, Albo was clear about the threats we face. He had developed what Sheridan called a, quote, strategic intimacy with his Japanese counterpart, Fumio Kishida. And he said the threat time frame in which we are forewarned about the nation facing a strategic military challenge is now shorter than the 10 years that we're accustomed with. Asked if we will be acquiring new military capabilities in the next five years, he said, quote, correct. What capabilities? That will be determined by a review by former Labor Foreign Minister Stephen Smith and former Defence Chief Angus Houston in February. A confidential interim report was delivered to Albo last week. Australia's military focus has for years been based on foreign operations like Afghanistan, but now the threat is closer to home. The report will offer suggestions about missile defence, drones, and even cyber attacks. In short, it's a dramatic rethink of our military purpose and strategy. Sounds expensive, right? Well, where will Albo find the money for it? Sheridan didn't ask. Perhaps Albo will find it down the back of the same lounge where he found the whopping $770,000 for Smith & Houston to produce the strategic review report in eight months. That's almost 100 grand a month. Not bad work if you can get it. One person who is skeptical about the government's ability, let alone will, to defend the nation is Andrew, Andrew Hastie, the shadow defence minister, who is himself a former SAS soldier who served in Afghanistan. In a speech to a business forum in Perth last week, he said the recent federal budget, the reduction in the percentage of GDP spent on defence, and the fact that inflation was reducing purchasing power, quote, does not inspire confidence. I'm pleased to say he joins me now. Andrew, welcome. Great to be with you, Fred. Thanks for having me on. Andrew, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was comfortably reassuring in the interview in the weekend, saying all the right things about threats from China and our need to defend ourselves. Were you convinced? I've got to say he did signal the right things. It's a bit of a road to Damascus type conversion on, on defence and national security for the Prime Minister. But like I said in my speech last week, the coalition will work constructively with the government on national security and defence, and we will oppose anyone who gets in the way of the sacred work of, of protecting our country. So he signalled that, yes, we do need to invest in new capabilities. He didn't put a, a cap on how much would be spent. Um, I argued last week that it needs to be well above 2.5%, probably pushing towards 3% in order to acquire some of the capabilities. So I think uh, the interview with Greg Sheridan was, was, was positive, uh, but my job is to hold him to account along with opposition leader Peter Dutton. And so now that he's on the paper, he's made commitments, we're going to hold him to those commitments. What you call it sacred work, which it is, uh, and should be above partisan politics, where do you and the government see eye to eye? I think what we need to do is develop new capabilities that can project Australian power well beyond the archipelago. So strike capabilities, being able to reach out and hold an adversary at risk beyond our shores. In order to do that, you need uh, surface and subsurface capability. Subsurface, of course, nuclear submarines and surface capabilities like ships, uh, naval ships. And then, of course, in the, in the skies, you need um, fighters, bombers and drones. 
Um, so it's fairly sophisticated technology. It takes a long time to acquire and build, and we're running out of time. Uh, as I also made clear in the speech, the, the Davidson window, and I can explain what that means to your viewers a bit more, the Davidson window is, is closing. Yeah, yeah, please explain. That's, this is about how soon China is likely to uh, try to take Taiwan, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the former commander of the Indo-Pacific Command, the US um, command that is, Admiral Phil Davidson, in his valedictory appearance before the Armed uh, Services Senate Committee last year, in March last year, he, he said basically China may well try to take Taiwan within six years, so 2027. Uh, we're now 18 months into that into that window, four and a half years to go. And his comments have since been added to by Secretary of State Blinken, who said China may well take Taiwan sooner rather than later. And then the Chief of Naval Operations in the US also said uh, potentially within the year. So all the signals we're getting out of our US partners are quite alarming, I must say, and they're considered words um, and we've got to take them seriously. So, and so the question is, if we're not going to get submarines inside the Davidson window before 2027, what are we doing to hedge against conflict in that time? And that's why I've made the case that we need strike capabilities and quickly. Are we ready? I mean, you, we, obviously we aren't, but how quickly can we be ready for, say, China taking Taiwan? Well, look, I think a friend of the show, Jim Mullen, uh, a great man, former former general in the ADF, now senator, he's done a lot of work on, on how ready, uh, asking the question, how ready is Australia? And we're not ready enough. Um, we can talk about a defence force, but there are other questions that need answering. Our energy security, our fuel, fuel security, our supply chain security, all these things pose vulnerabilities if we don't actually harden and strengthen them. And that's what we need to look at in addition to building our defence force up. We also have a recruiting gap. Uh, in order to grow our defence force by 18,000 people over the next 18 years, we need to have a net growth of 1,000 people per year. At the moment, our net growth is 300. Yeah, I'd like to get onto the personnel in a minute because that's actually a cultural issue, um, which we'll get to in a second. Now, let's just look at uh, the situation in the US for a second. Um, the midterm elections are on tomorrow. And if the Democrats lose Congress and the second half of Joe Biden's presidency is emasculated, do you think that will hasten China's move on Taiwan? Look, I think um, if, if the Republicans win the House and the Senate, what you'll see is, is, a, is a hardening of the US position with regards to China. And um, I think perhaps greater, greater leadership um, in addition to, to that, which is already coming out of the White House. So uh, it's gonna be interesting. And, and Senator James Patterson, another friend of the program as well, he and I went to the US only uh, weeks ago. We had some great meetings on the Hill with US senators, Senator Josh Hawley, for example, um, Roger Wicker from um, Mississippi, who will potentially be the the chair of the Armed Services Committee. We argued very strongly for um, uh, AUKUS and speeding up the process by which we can acquire a nuclear submarine if we go with a Virginia-class Virginia submarine. Well, you also said while you're in the US that Australia has to uh, sort of emphasise its commitment to Western civil civilization. I mean, we are... We do have to make a decision, don't we? Are we uh, a, a, a trading partner with China and sort of half-heartedly endorse their, their movements in the region? Or do we throw our lot in with 
our Western civilization heritage. Is that right? I, I think ultimately, yes. We, we, we are very, very close partners with the United States. We have a growing relationship with, with India, with Japan, as through the Quad. Um, we need to do more work with ASEAN countries. I think we've got a lot of work that we need to do in Southeast Asia. I think the, the pandemic, particularly with the very, very strident approach that we took here, um, came at a huge cost to our dim diplomatic relationships in the region. Not uh, before we even get onto the topic of, of what the lockdowns meant for, for Australian citizens. There was a there was a cost in terms of our relationships internationally as well, and I think we need to rebuild those. That's why in the past I've said we need to take the approach of, of of Singapore and Israel. We need to be talking to everyone. We need to be building friends with 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 everyone. Uh, because uh, China isn't going away and the last thing we need is China dominating the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, true. Now, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott um, has recently said, interestingly, that young people should do a year's community or military service after finishing school. I'll read you the quote. We, by which he means the government, constantly talk about what we're going to do for people. Yes, we have rights and the government has certain obligations to us which it should do. But this is a two-way street. It's about giving and receiving. Now, Andrew, how crucial is it that Australia starts teaching young people to understand just how lucky they are to, to have been born here or migrated here, and that freedom and prosperity are actually very fragile? I think it's critical, Fred. Democracy is such a fragile thing. Australia is one of the oldest continuing liberal democracies in the world. And it didn't just happen. It's the fruit of a of a cultural heritage that we that we that our the British settlement brought with them, um, and it's been leavened and, and nourished by people from all over the world who fled, you know, dictatorships and, and communism and and all sorts of tyrannical governments. And you know, I think it was T. S. Eliot, uh, the the English poet, who in 1939 gave a lecture at Cambridge about the challenge of authoritarian governments. And he basically said, more important than your system of government is your system of education. And if you're not growing young minds who believe in the system of government, then over time, faith in that system of government will, will diminish and, and erode. And so I think education is critical, which is why Peter Dutton in his budget in reply speech put down those markers and said, you know, we need to have a, a, a good view of Australian history. We need to recognise our faults, but there is a lot of great things that we can celebrate with young Australians and building that sense of, of love of country, that patriotism and that commitment to, to our system of government, which is, which is really critical. We're all stewards in the end and we need to steward it now and we need to have generations who will steward it in the future. But Andrew, where did all that that, educa that, that education in favour of teaching kids to love their country and to understand how lucky they are. Where was that during the nine years of the of the coalition government? And and before then, Fred. I mean, I I remember growing up, and uh, I didn't really get taught a great deal of Australian history either. Um, this is something we've just taken for granted. And if you if you if you don't do the work, if you don't invest. In, in teaching and teachers, um, you've got a problem. I, I agree with James Patterson. I think the, the national curriculum was, was a bad move. Um, that was implemented under a conservative government, the Howard years, in fact, um, because what you want is competition among the states who can you know, build curriculum that you know, people want to 
people want to learn. Well, the um, curriculum is, is now sort of infested with the idea that Australia is a bad country. It's a colonial oppressor and that environmentalism is just, our, our treatment of the environment is, is destroying the earth and that um, our, uh, our indigenous, the, the indigenous culture that we've trampled on is far better than our own. This is what kids are learning every day in school now. I mean, how soon can we correct that? Well, that's that's a really that's a really good question, and I think, um, Fred, you know, the education system is ripe for disruption. Um, my son, for example, is seven years old. He's learning his history from people like Dominic Sandbrook, who's a, a historian who does a podcast that I love. The rest is history with Tom Holland, who wrote Dominion, a great book. Um, they've done 250 podcasts, I think, in something like two years. Dominic started writing books for for kids aged seven to twelve. And, you know, instead of going to his, you know, going to school expecting to, to learn, I'm, I'm, I'm taking him through a program of my own. And I think, you know, going, looking back at my time of university, um, I wish, you know, podcasts like The Rest is History had been around then because I'm not sure I would have bothered turning up to a lot of the lectures that, that I paid for through HEX, um, which were ultimately meaningless. I remember at University of New South Wales in Kensington, uh, a lecturer saying, I'm an anarchist, I don't care if you turn up or not, um, you know, do whatever you want. And of course, <laughs> yeah. well, there's no incentive to, to turn up and learn, right? Yeah, Which exactly. Which is why I ended up at the Defence Force Academy, because um, there, there was a decent education there. But education as a whole, there's a lot of questions that, that we can pose, and I think that's the task of us in opposition to come up with the answers. Yeah, I'd say it's as urgent as uh, the, the the need to uh, bolster our defence. You know, it's it's defending the country from within, if you if you like to put it that way. And also, right. uh, I highly recommend the rest is history. I listened to it myself. Now, How Andrew, um, you said in your speech uh, last week in Perth that your generation, Generation Y, which is born between 1980 and 1994 value personal freedom and control of their careers over previous generations. Now, let's get to this, uh, this, this point you made earlier. We need to increase the number of personnel in our defence forces. Is, is your generation likely to embrace the strict career paths of the military? Look, I think the military um, can always be reforming and adapting itself to the present. I think there are some things that the military must always insist on, which is service above self, teamwork, discipline, and there are vocational requirements um, which are different to any other career because in the end, you might have to put your life on the line for your country. Uh, you might even have to give it for your country and you might have to use lethal force to defend your country. Not everyone is equipped to do that. And so, first of all, defense must be a values proposition um, and it must have a, a you know, a, an ethic that is completely different to any other vocation or job in, in Australian society. But insofar as we can make life manageable for people, we should. And I think defence in many respects is a little antiquated. They've, they've you know, kept up with some of the systems from the, the previous century. Um, and also my generation is one that, you know, is, is believes in merit and, um, a lot of defence progression is done over time by ticking boxes in certain jobs. I remember back in 2015, I had this light bulb moment where I realised that I'd have to wait, you know, eight or nine years before I could do a job, which I was perfectly ready to do then, but I'd have to progress through a number of other jobs. 
And so I think having a more dynamic work environment where uh, people are recognised for their specialty, for their talent, um, is, is really, really important. Otherwise, we'll just lose people to, to, to business or elsewhere where they can progress far more quickly um, because that's where disruption happens. Indeed. Uh, just getting back to Tony Abbott's point, do you agree? Uh, school kids finishing school, one year of military service, what do you think? Look, I think there's a lot of merit to it. I think um, we already have what we call a gap year program where uh, kids can join up and do a year in the ADF. They can choose to stay on and have a career or they can choose to, to move on. And I think that as a, as a, as a concept demonstrator has, has shown that, yes, it's actually a very, very beneficial thing. You speak to the Singaporeans, you speak to the Israelis, the thing that really matters in those cultures is, is military service. That's what binds the country together particularly when you have more diverse populations. And in Israel, for example, people don't actually talk about what university you went to. It's what military unit you served in whilst you're doing your national service. Now, as I said, military service is not for everyone. So, you know, for Tony Abbott's idea, you'd have to account for people wanting to serve maybe in disaster relief or human humanitarian service overseas or potentially community service elsewhere. Yeah. But I think this idea of service is something that we should seriously consider. Yeah, I think you're right. Andrew Hasty, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Fred. That's Federal Shadow Defence Minister, Andrew Hasty. Remember Kathy Griffin, the American comedian who shocked the world by posing with a fake bloodied Donald Trump severed head in 2017. This is her without the horrifying prop, which I'm sure you can imagine or remember without me posting it again. Griffin copped a bit of flack for that stunt. The response from the general public was one of justified disgust. Griffin was forced to post an apology and described the stunt as a mistake. She then became one of the few leftists ever to suffer the ignominy of being cancelled. Well, Sort of. Griffin revealed last year that she had been diagnosed with lung cancer, a disease she later beat and from which she has recovered. Good honour. Cancer is an evil affliction that can strike any of us. Cancellation, however, doesn't apply quite so vigorously to leftists as it does to everyone else. Griffin has done a series of interviews over the years about the Trump stunt and her regret quickly morphed into mild amusement about it all, including this from 2018. And so now I'm naming the tour and I'll be playing Carnegie Hall and Radio City Music Hall at the Kathy Griffin Laugh Your Head Off World Tour. There you go. <laughs> Laugh. Then in 2020, she posted the, the photo that got her into trouble in the first place. She posted it again on social media. So no regrets then. Trump, to his credit, has more important things to think about than Kathy Griffin, which must irritate her enormously. As we all know, the most annoying response to a provocateur is no response at all. Well, that's what I thought until I saw Kathy Griffin had been banned from Twitter. Conservative comedian Benny Johnson announced, breaking, Kathy Griffin has been permanently suspended from Twitter for impersonating Elon Musk. This is actually within Musk's new regulations for Twitter, which is that, quote, any Twitter handles engaging in impersonation without clearly specifying parody 
will be permanently suspended, unquote. But then Musk went one better, tweeting in reply to Johnson, actually, she was suspended for impersonating a comedian, unquote. Well, there's one cancellation I think we can all get behind. Well, is there any greater respect anywhere in the world than that shown by Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews to journalists whose questions occasionally ruffle his feathers? According to him, there's not. He routinely prefaces his replies with the humbling assertion, quote, with the greatest of respect, unquote. The greatest, you say, Dan? I'll let you viewers be the judge of that. The words made you what were you referring to when you referenced Smear and Innuendo? And I'd, you need to speak to your statement, Premier. You put out the statement. You must be able to explain it. Well, with the greatest of respect, Paul, it's not, it's not for you to, 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 if I can, but the greatest of respect. Um, you've asked your question, and I'll determine how to answer that, that question. Uh, and that's, that's how this works. And I've done literally thousands of these, and that's how it works. You ask them, I answer them. Please have a look at my statement. I've got absolutely nothing further to add. So you can't speak to your statement? I've issued the statement. What did it mean? I've issued the statement. Well, Paul, read the statement. No one else here is asking me what the statement means. The statement is very, very clear. Statements for read, read the statement. Read the statement. Please read the statement. Please read the statement. Well, call me a stickler for etiquette, but I think there might be better ways to show one's respect than answering a question by categorically saying you won't answer the question. If smirks generated energy, you could forget the windmills Dan wants to plant in the ocean off Gippsland and instead power the state with his smug expression of contempt for even the most reasonable questions from an otherwise obsequious publication like The Age. Sadly, Dan's fake smile isn't going to light up the state, but he is betting on enough people in his tragically divided fiefdom of Victoria having a nostalgic glow for his world record COVID lockdowns and are anticipating with joy the prospect of power blackouts caused by his phasing out of cheap, reliable energy. Will his strategy get him over the line in the election in just under three weeks? Or are Victorians growing tired of the excessive respect he shows the for the state and the satisfied grin he makes every time he refuses to answer a question? Even the ABC is starting to express a little doubt. Cos Samaras was quoted on Radio National this morning saying, quote, confirmation that the political class seems not to be engaging with the issues that matter to them, unquote. Samaras was also referring to the coalition, of course, but that's just because the coalition is trying to imitate Labor anyway. Are we heading towards a change of government in Victoria? Let's bring in Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne to find out. Gideon, welcome. Great to be here, my friend. Great to be back. Now, firstly, there's a lot of controversy around Andrews and his wife allegedly leaving mm. the scene of an accident in 2013 mm. in which a 15-year-old cyclist was almost killed. Do you think Andrews has adequately addressed all this? 
Well, look, no, he hasn't. Of course he hasn't. And as you said, with the clip uh, of Dan Andrews saying, with the greatest of respect, I want to stonewall you because I have no respect for you. Uh, this is a similar, you know, it's the Dan Andrews play- playbook. It is this happened 10 years ago. Uh, I've answered all questions. I'm not going to answer any more. Uh, that tactic worked for Dan during Corona when he could uh, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly say, well, this is a crisis. You know, I don't have time to answer questions about democracy or human rights because, uh, you know, we've got hospitals that might be on a run or whatever he line he was going with on that particular day. Uh, now that he's not in crisis mode and the voters aren't in crisis mode, I think they're beginning to see that kind of stonewalling for the uh, political trickery that it almost certainly is. And, you know, in relation to the kid on the bike, look, frankly, I didn't take a lot of notice of it. Obviously, it's a terrible story. You feel terrible for the kid. Uh, it tells us allegedly what we uh, need to know about Dan Andrews or so it has been said in the media. Um, but then I listened to my mother-in-law shortly after that, and she had actually taken a lot of notice after that. And she was saying, oh, it was terrible. He wouldn't answer a question. And Kath Andrews was smirking and being dismissive and so on. So like, I think that shows that the disconnect between, you know, a grizzled veteran like me who says, oh, you know, it's just Dan being Dan again, and people who are about to vote and people who aren't uh, as engaged. My mother-in-law is a bit of a bad example because she's very, very politically engaged and, and quite right-wing. But I guess it shows what people in punterland think. And I think... That smirk by Catherine Andrews in particular, if that came across as badly on the six o'clock evening news as it is to my mother-in-law, uh, then that could be maybe Dan Andrews's Mark Latham-style handshake moment. I think his playbook of just controlling the message with brute force uh, is starting to raise more questions than it's actually avoiding at this stage, and that might see through to polling day. Well, one of the questions he's avoiding is whether or not it was legal for him to leave the scene of that accident, which the allegations certainly make. Now, how can anyone vote for a politician who has an allegation like that hanging over his head? Look, it doesn't matter what's so much legal or illegal in this case. I mean, it it raises a question if the then opposition leader and alternative premier uh, broke the law. Again, we don't uh, know that, or I'm not familiar enough with the case to make any sort of definitive legal opinion. But if indeed, as he's alleged, he did leave the scene uh, where this person was injured, it may not be illegal, but it was certainly immoral if that's indeed what happened. Uh, This is somebody who ran in 2014. I I remember I was, uh, you know, my past life in organised politics, campaigning at pre-polls, for the Liberal Party, and Dan Andrews had uh, messaging there saying that we will keep you safe, we will protect you, we will bolster the hospital system. He had unionists dressed up as ambulance drivers going up to people saying, if you don't vote for the Labor Party, you won't be able to get an ambulance and you'll die. Side note, the ambulance system is faring a lot worse these days after three terms or two terms of Dan, go figure. Uh, But secondly, this is somebody who was campaigning on people being able, at risk of having accidents like that and not being able to get an ambulance when allegedly he and his wife did not render assistance to to some kid that they allegedly ran over to begin with. Uh, Again, this is uh, Dan Andrews' character coming out and stories like this, if indeed they are accurate. um, Again, I I think these kind of anecdotes are starting to come together. And, you know, I was sceptical about the Victorian Liberal Party running on integrity. To me, that's a trick that the Liberals can pull on, uh, Labor can pull on the Liberals, not the other way around, just because of brand equity issues and so forth. But 
I think we might be starting to see the dividends of it now. And I think we are seeing the characterization of Andrews, uh, indeed, in the way that, you know, many of us and many Victorians who've had their lives ruined by Dan Andrews uh, can see him. Yes, well, let's let's turn to the latest controversy he's found himself in. This is regarding his role in grants worth $3.4 million to the Health Workers Union before the 2018 election. Mm. Might have been what you were referring to a second ago. Now, what yeah. is that that allegation specifically and what has he actually said about it? Uh, look, I'm not too familiar with the circumstances of that particular uh, allegation. Before, from what I understand, the case or the 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 what he's accused of doing is giving a contract to uh, for workplace training or something in that domain to the health services union against the recommendations of the department and so on. Uh, it would look ostensibly like a uh, some sort of government-funded sweetener to a sympathetic constituent union of the Labor Party. Uh, and as usual, Dan has said, well, look, I've, you know, I don't comment on ongoing IBAC investigations and so on. I'm sorry. If a Liberal party, uh, party MP or Shadow Minister was before IBAC, we would never hear the end of it. That just doesn't wash. It is a little bit cute and a little bit too convenient. And even if you accept the, the, the idea that he can't comment because it's under investigation, I think for the Premier of Victoria going for his third term, I think he needs to give more to the people by way of explanation than just, well, it's all going on behind closed doors. You need, don't need to know anything else about it. Surely, uh, if, he thought, if he wasn't as arrogant and as sure of himself as he was, he would offer some sort of explanation and some sort of uh, concession to voters beyond, well, you know, I don't have to talk about that because, nah. Yeah, it's funny. I think his arrogance might be his downfall. I mean, he, his policies, mm. as far as you and I are concerned, his policies are absolutely catastrophic. But, you know, at a time when Australians are starved of decent and principled politicians, he gets away with it. But I think that smirk, that's going to be his downfall. You know, Fred, it's interesting. People, well, the one number one question I'm asked, and I have been asked for the last 12 months by anybody who recognises me from TV or whatever else, the only thing I'm asked these days is, is Andrews really going to win? Because people can't believe that he's ahead. And I, I, I say, look, I don't know, probably. Uh, I think this is the first time in the entire election cycle where I've genuinely believed that Matthew Guy and the Liberals are a chance. I don't think it's a certainty by any stretch. Uh, and I don't want to PVO myself. I don't think it's even likely. But I can see a path here because this election is starting to remind me of 1999 in Victoria when Jeff Kennett lost against all odds, polling, you name it, a complete shock upset election result. And the factors there were, you know, a, and I guess wrongly, I must say, in a lot of instances in Kenneth's case, but rightly in Dan's, it was seen a larger than life figure, dominant of the Victorian political landscape, perceived as having integrity issues, perceived as being out of, as, as being out of touch, uh, perceived as being arrogant, uh, perceived as being miles ahead and a guarantee to win. On the other side, you have the proliferation of what I'm calling maroon independence. There are some high profile organised independents, particularly in the west and north of Melbourne, also in Mulgrave, although Mulgrave is a separate issue because that's the Premier's seat, so anything can happen there. But there are some independents poking their heads up in the west and the north. If they could pull off some, uh, some upsets in Labor's heartland and seats that the Liberals would never, ever win in a million years, uh, the Andrews government could 
could find itself in minority government territory. And in that instance, two or three of these maroon independents, just like in 1999 with three rural independents who backed Steve Brax, they could hand government to Matthew Guy. It is not impossible. Uh, of course, offsetting that is the other issues that the Liberals are having in their heartland seats under the, I don't think the Teals are as serious or as much of a threat this time, um, but there is, uh, there are issues with the Liberal Party in seats like Kew, Hawthorne and so on. I hope uh, that I see, we see people like Jess Wilson and John Pasuto get up. I think Jess Wilson in particular is the future of the Liberal Party and she's been campaigning so hard. So who knows, uh, that might not be an issue in those seats either. But the, the bottom line is, Fred, uh, it's possible. And don't forget as well, Nobody expected Jeff Kenner to lose. Nobody expected John Brumby to lose and for Ted Bailey to win 11 years after that. Victoria throws up surprises every decade and we are due for one. So it ain't over. I jump on Sportsbet and have a look at those odds because there are some really, really juicy ones out there. But as always, gamble responsibly. <laughs> now, you, this is the first time I've, I've got you to, uh, to concede that the coalition is a chance after a couple of months of talking mm. about this. Would they differ much from Labor, given that they've tried to make themselves out to be Labor light anyway? Look, I think they would. Uh, obviously, their policy platform is not what people like you or I, and I think a lot of Victorians would have wanted. Uh, I think it was a mistake to obviously promise uh, a, a 2030 emissions reduction target that is more ambitious than Anthony Albanese's. I Again, I was sceptical about the Liberal Party running on integrity, although I think I've been proven wrong on that. I was sceptical about the Liberal Party running on health. That is not happy hunting ground for the Liberals anywhere ever. But I have to say Georgie Crozier has done a really, really good job of turning, at least neutralising that uh, for Labor. In terms of what they do in office, well, they've uh, you know, back themselves into a whole lot of spending promises and a whole lot of, you know, tram lines and, uh, you know, uh, things like this pitched at certain marginal electorates, but every political party in opposition and indeed in government does that. Uh, look, the bottom line is, would Matthew Guy have uh, subjected the city of Melbourne to their longest lockdown in the world? I don't think he would have. Uh, would Matthew Guy have, uh, would Matthew Guy tell journalists, I'm not going to answer that because I don't feel like it? No, he wouldn't. Uh, would Matthew Guy have presided over so many, uh, you know, alleged uh, factional deals and, and dubious uh, operations in government like Dan has. No, he wouldn't. Uh, look, I've known Matthew Guy since I was 18, year old, 18 years old, since my university days. I actually do think he would make a great premier. I don't think his election promises have been all that flash. Uh, but look, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens if and when he gets there. But is he an improvement on Dan? Well, the proverbial drover's dog would be better than Dan at this point. So uh, I think we should keep all our fingers and toes crossed. Yeah, the proverbial do drover's dog would be better, and I think a lot of Victorians are waiting on their front verandas with baseball bats, as the saying goes. Now, let's talk about the Teals mm. in the federal election. They stole a lot of traditional mm. liberal inner-city electorates in the, in the recent federal election, off the coalition, I should point out. Turns out that Monique Ryan, who beat former federal treasurer Josh Frydenberg in Robert Manzi's old seat of Kuyong, spent $2.1 million on her campaign. Allegra Spender in the blue ribbon seat of Wentworth in Sydney spent slightly more. Gideon, where do you reckon this money mm. came from? Uh, look, it came mostly uh, apparently from the Climate 200 organisation uh, that's the brainchild of Simon Holmes Accord. Who the donors are to that, we don't actually know. Uh, but look, Fred, I, I find this whole discussion about where money came from and who's funding the message a bit of a sideshow in all instances. The fact of the matter is, uh, if I raised, you know, $20 million and ran for a seat with a on a campaign platform of making everybody wear red underwear on their head all day long, uh, I wouldn't win because as much money as I have, uh, you need 50% plus one of people to vote for that message. The fact of 
of the matter is the Teal message resonated. It didn't resonate with a big proportion of the country. It resonated with people in six seats out of 151. This is the ultra-wealthy party uh, running. By, it is a party of the ultra-wealthy, by the ultra-wealthy and for the ultra-wealthy. Hence, it's fascination with uh, hobby horses like climate change and a federal ICAC and so on. Uh, but look, it, it, again, uh, you can't deny that there was support for these characters and these electorates. Uh, they, they raised the money. Uh, I think a bigger question is uh, now holding them to account for their promises, holding them to account for what they do in the parliament, showing them up to be the privileged amateurs that they are, uh, showing that they really haven't made a mark on this parliament that wouldn't have happened anyway in any event. Uh, and for the Liberal Party, I suppose it is a, an existential question as to whether to try to win these seats back uh, that were lost to the Teals or to pivot and frame, a, and, and frame a message directly to the Australian heartland in, for example, Western Sydney. Now, if you did that, you wouldn't have to go through the motions of matching Labor on this climate business. They would actually be free to say, uh, no, 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 the future of Australia is coal, it's gas, it's the free market, it's small business, it's family, it's faith. Uh, I, I, it's been sort of an axiom among uh, circles of political circles like mine for some time that th this rump of you know wealthy affluent seats in the inner city is actually costing the Liberal Party more than it's gaining them at this point. It might be time to cut the cord and cut the losses. Well said. You make a lot of sense, Gideon. Now, just quickly before you go, did you notice that no Democrat candidates in the midterm elections in the United States wanted to have Joe Biden within cooey in the on the on the campaign? Um, what did you make of that? Look, oh, well, I mean, uh, uh, this happens in elections. Uh, a political leader becomes toxic. Uh, nobody wants to be seen with him become, because he becomes, he or she, I should say, or they or whatever the hell, uh, becomes a drag on the vote. So obviously Joe Biden's presidency is going horrendously. Uh, no Democrat worth their salt wants to be pictured next to him. But it's not just Joe Biden. It's not just the brain farts or the, uh, you know, lurch to the left or anything else. It's the messages they're going on. I mean, they're going out there saying, if you vote against the Democratic Party, that is the end of democracy no, that is democracy in action. Uh, this is a deplorable moment on steroids, hammered over and over and over again. Meanwhile, they have left the field completely open on the economy, and that is the number one uh, thing on voters' minds right now because, as I've been predicting, me, myself, for you know, since May 2020, when everybody thought I was crazy, inflation is a, a terrible, terrible societal issue in the US, just like it's becoming in Australia and certainly Europe uh, and other places. Uh, there is There are two main issues on the ballot this time around crime and inflation and the democrats not only have failed to engage in those debates but are denying that there are even problems uh, we talk about dan being out of touch well he's uh, you know ronald, ronald reagan and edmund burke combined compared to joe biden and the democrats uh, so uh, look i'm i'm holding out hope for a, a good result on the uh, on you know wednesday this week as it will be in australian time uh, and the result will tell us how fair and uh, accurate the electoral elect uh, the american electoral system is well said, Gideon. We're, we're waiting with bated breath to see the results too. Gideon, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Democrats in the United States are obstinately sticking with loopy ideas and candidates that clearly are not resonating with the voters. And after two years, two tumultuous years of Joe Biden as president, it is predicted that the Republicans will win bigly in the midterm elections tomorrow. But the biggest story out of the campaigning thus far would have to be former President Donald Trump and his rallies. 
He has alluded during his speech that his speeches that he will soon announce another run for president in 2024. This could mean a rematch between Biden and Trump. We've seen how scared the Democrats are of Trump running again by the way they have continued two years on to pin absolutely everything on Trump. It's the blame Trump tactic. And then the FBI raid this year on Trump's Mar-a-Lago property in Florida was supposed to cripple Trump, but has instead seen his support rise as voters grow tired of this endless witch hunt. As Trump's former National Secretary Advisor John Bolton told the ABC, the raid at Mar-a-Lago was a gift to Trump. The politicization of the FBI in recent times has been a huge concern to Americans, and this event proved it. But another reason why Trump remains relative, relevant today, and indeed still very popular among Republican voters, is because he talks their talk and understands their concerns. For example, here is Trump talking at a rally in Iowa today where he slams critical race theory and says that every parent in America should be empowered. In other words, parental choice should be promoted and parents ought to have a say when it comes to the education system. Trump says enough of the indoctrination already. Take a look. One of the first things we must do is stand up for parents' rights and parental rights. We will get critical race theory out of our schools. We're going to get it out of our military. We're going to get it out of every part of our federal government that I had it out of our federal government. Then they came along and the first day, the first day, they put it back. But we're going to get it out of our federal, state, and local governments. And at long last, every parent in America must be empowered to opt out of forced indoctrination in the classroom and send their child to the public, private, charter, religious, or home school of their choice. And they wonder why he's popular, eh? Name me one Australian politician in the Liberal Party who has taken such a stand against critical race theory and the indoctrination of our children in classrooms. We had a coalition government for nearly a decade. During that time, did an education minister come out as strongly as that? The education minister in New South Wales, Sarah Mitchell of the National Party, is oblivious to the wokeness of the school curriculum and won't even discuss the issue with Mark Latham, one of the leading campaigners, in Australia to return traditional values and, con and content to our schools. Latham's of the One Nation Party, of course. Donald Trump is a rare beast in politics. Many centre-right politicians would prefer to sit on the fence and not generate any political drama by calling this out. They prefer to just blame the bureaucrats in the education department, throw their hands up and say, nothing I can do here, but not Trump. He plans to tackle this head on. It is difficult to see him losing the Republican presidential primaries if he chooses to stand again. And just before I go, don't you just love how all these world leaders are gushing over COP27, the United Nations climate summit held in Egypt? The world is on the brink of a global recession, which could last for a decade. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is reaching a catastrophic phase with the Russians destroying the, uh, the nation's energy infrastructure and a dangerously erratic and nuclear-armed North Korea continues to launch ballistic missiles. 
I spoke with Andrew Hasty tonight about the very real possibility of war and how Australia is not up to defending itself. These are huge global problems which could spell catastrophe for billions of people. Yet most of the headlines in the mainstream media are about which world leader will or won't attend COP27 in Egypt. It's a gab fest for climate change where rich people, eco-millionaires and politicians fly across the world in their private jets and talk empty platitudes. When are we going to get real about the actual threats that we face? Why isn't there a global summit about how to stop Putin and other global adversaries who wish to disrupt the world peace? That'd be something, that'd be a summit I'd support. This is why I have a lot of time for former Democrat presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard. She's a former Hawaiian Congresswoman who made headlines last month because she quit the Democrats saying her party is dominated by, quote, cowardly wokeness. She was the first Samoan American voting member and Hindu elected to Congress, plus she served two tours of duty in the Middle East. But why I have a lot of time for her is because she entered politics out of desperation, because she felt the Washington swamp wasn't taking the threat of North Korea seriously enough. Gabbard has warned in the past, quote, the nuclear threat coming from North Korea is the serious reality that the people of Hawaii face, unquote. Back in January 2018, Hawaii was faced with, thankfully, a false alarm about an incoming ballistic missile. She recounts how people were in the streets running and trying to find a bomb shelter and unsure of how long they had. One story she recounted was of a father unsure whether he had enough time to collect one of his children in Honolulu and then drive an extra hour to collect his other child. So he sat in his car trying to decide. This is the real threat faced by the people of Hawaii. Not that America's climate change envoy, John Kerry, would care. When will world leaders start talk, taking action on the very real threats faced by citizens around the world? Threats like terrorism, cybersecurity, and the theft of people's data by corporations, tax avoidance by multinationals, which could be used to build infrastructure and fund schools and hospitals, stopping Russia in its barbaric war against Ukraine, stopping North Korea, telling China to stop its aggressive and expansionist ways. These are real problems. Instead, we have to endure this running commentary about the climate change summit in Egypt and who is and isn't attending and what pie in the sky targets will be set by elites on people like you and me who don't have to sacrifice a thing themselves. No wonder the public feel isolated and disillusioned by the political system. Their worries and concerns are not the worries and concerns of decision makers. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. As you can see, Alan Jones is still dealing with medical issues and won't be with us again anytime soon. I'm sure you'll join me in wishing him a, a speedy recovery. Meanwhile, you've got the Fred Paul Show every night here on ADH TV, where we enjoy saying the things that you think, but can't hear on other news channels. See you here tomorrow night at eight o'clock. Good night.